Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy, and after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real-life behind-the-scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. While you're listening today, please take a moment and rate and review Behind the Line on Apple Podcast. Your support and feedback goes a long way in making this resource more visible to others who work in first response and frontline work. Thanks so much for your help and your support. I've been looking forward to this episode for a really long time. Today, I am joined by a truly lovely human who I have had the joy and privilege of knowing for many years now. Hillary McBride is a therapist, researcher, speaker, and writer. She's a registered psychologist with a PhD in counseling psychology from the University of British Columbia. She enjoys working with adults struggling with anxiety, depression, self-esteem, body image, life transitions, mother-daughter relationships, and perinatal mental health, including birth trauma. She has advanced training in trauma, eating disorders, body image, marriage and relationship therapy, perinatal mental health, and psychedelic integration. Hillary is the author of three books, including Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Embodiment and Eating Disorders, and The Wisdom of Your Body. Hillary's thoughtful and body-connected approach felt like the exact right fit for this conversation about heart-based helping. We explore together the challenges of retaining our hearts while engaging in hard work and even harder systems, and consider ways to keep our hearts intact in the face of the pressures associated with first response and frontline helping professions. Let's jump in. Welcome, Hillary. I am so excited to finally get you. It was so good to finally be able to find a time to connect with you and have you here on Behind the Line. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be with you, Lindsay. (laughs) Okay. Well, I know little bits and lots of bits about you because I've had the joy of knowing you and then watching you from afar as you take on the world. Um, but I would love for our audience to get to know a little bit about you, Hillary. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and some of your professional background mm. so that they know where you're coming from? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
You know, it's easier to identify in some ways the professional clinical background pieces because they fit nicely and neatly in boxes. I have a, yeah, I've got a PhD in counseling psychology and I've got a few areas of specialization like trauma, embodiment. I do some work in perinatal mental health and spirituality as it intersects with mental health. But I think underneath all of that and kind of what orients me towards the work is that I'm really interested in what it means to be human. I'm really curious about the process of... Uh, making something out of our pain. Mm -hmm. I was going to say healing, but that's sometimes it's not, that's not quite the right word uh, because it can feel passive or it can feel linear in some way. And I think, I don't think that, yeah, I don't think that's always how life goes, but making something with pain, what, what is it that allows us to do that? What does it mean to, yeah, to create to create meaning, to create connection, to to create identity, to be a self in the world. What does a self even mean? What does our body have to do with that? I mean, those questions, even as I start talking, I'm like, those, yeah, those are the questions that feel like they're under, they undergird so much of my orientation towards this work. And I think my my foray into motherhood, I've got a, we were just talking about an almost two-year-old motherhood has really catapulted that. And so I, I now consider my my identity as a parent and the joy and stretching and complexity of of being with a life that is emerging right in front of me I think really really uh allows for even more of those questions that I I ask in my clinical work to come to the fore because there's so much as you know, when we are therapists sitting across from people who are making sense of their pain, there's so much in the early years that that people come back to you. And so it feels yeah. really special and inspiring and humbling to be watching a life unfold and wanting to do it right. And what does that even mean? What does it mean to do it right? So those are some of the things that rattle around in my brain and yeah. I love Maybe we'll start there. I love your I love your brain rattling and I love um and, and we talked about this when we jumped on the call before I hit record. I love how you are making your brain rattlings into something that invites mm-hmm. others to participate in that. Because I think they're the questions that many of us sit with often kind of rejecting of them and trying to, right, trying to push them off and scroll our phones instead and distract from that discomfort of the question. Um, because we, we can sense that we don't feel fully present. We can sense we don't feel fully satisfied. We can sense that there's some kind of, you know, disruption between how I would imagine myself liking to live versus how I'm living. But all of that's so uncomfortable to try to figure out and sit with and sort through. And so I think a lot of us do this like hand up and wall it out. And, um, and I think it's so valuable when we have people that are willing to, sit really openly and curiously with those questions and then provide some of that like mind rambling to us to kind of go like, oh, I actually feel that in the depths of my soul. Like I feel that when I read it, when I hear it, when I interact with it. And I love so much of the work that you're doing that that exposes some of those questions and invites invites people to join into those questions with you in a lot of different ways. Mm, thank you. Thank you mm-hmm. for saying that. I feel like it is a great segue into our topic because I think um, so much of what our audience struggles with is being these very um, genuine, authentic carers, right? These people who have a heart 
to genuinely enter the world and make a difference. And like shaped by lots of different things, I'm sure, right? And if we heard each person's story, it would be a little bit different. But but there's this like effortful wanting to invite the ability to care and show care to others. And then being in work where that often feels like it brings a lot of pain with it. And often pain that I think people aren't even really expecting, um, right? I thought I would just go and I would help and I would make people feel better and it was going to be so good. And instead, what I'm finding is, is I'm, I'm hurting for it. And so I'm curious, as you work with people and as you speak with people who are in helping kinds of professions, like what do you notice about what gets in the way of helping them or allowing them to stay genuinely in that heart-based, authentic kind of place as they do that work over time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, two things come to mind. Um, the first thing is I think that although many of our professions allow us to find a way to express the, the quality of longing and caring that we feel inside for others and that, that meaning orientation to the world of, of offering something and how rich that can be for us to receive something in return as we offer. I don't know how many of our, our caring professions allow us to show up as full humans. Mm-hmm. And so there is like this outpouring and output that's allowed, but there isn't always a paradigm for showing up as fully ourselves as in a kind of embodied way. And I think that that, that re- that reduction of the self to a kind of transaction where we are outputting and we are caring, but without allowing ourselves to be impacted without in, in a positive way, without allowing ourselves to be fully there as a body and articulate that to the people that we work with. I think that that reduces us down. I think that that inhibits in some way, the restorative elements of the work. So even like for me, choosing an, a therapeutic orientation, which allows me to track my own body and mm-hmm. suggest that that's a necessary function of me doing the work to stay in myself means that I am not overly preoccupied with the other person in a way that disavows my own bodily knowing mm-hmm. and makes use of it in the clinical work as a means of helping a person uh, connect to themselves more by tracking myself and maybe even self-disclosing about that to say, wow, when you said that, I noticed my heart sunk and, and I actually need a minute because this is really big. And I'm wondering if you can feel the bigness of that too. Like saying something like that, or, or again, another example would be, I am noticing, you know, I said this a lot when I was a new parent coming back to work, I'm working from home. I have noise canceling headphones on and I'm a new mom. And sometimes like I'll have a milk let down when my baby's crying in the other room. And I don't even know that that happens, right. That, that she's crying until my body is telling me that she's crying. Mm -hmm. And so I just want for you to know that if I seem a little distracted, I might be, but Mm -hmm. you can name that to me if it, if it's happening and I'll probably name that to you. Like, Hey, I was distracted. Can you say that again? Right. And this, there's something about allowing myself to be more human in the work that means that I don't have to shut off the resources that also mm-hmm. accompany the the hard things because that's that's such a big part of my clinical work is and I would say kind of the thrust of my work in general my public work to say that embodiment is hard because it means that we feel the hard things but also then we get access to the really beautiful resourcing things like our courage and our strength and the sense of pleasure and joy that we feel in our bodies that helps us hold the hard things so i mean that inside of session and outside of session 
Mm-hmm. So that's my first, my first thought is, can we as a discipline in the helping profession allow for more of the person to enter into the work? Can we create theories of counseling or, or theories of helping? Can we make room for the person of the helper to be fully themselves again mm-hmm. in a clinically appropriate ways in the work? And then I think the, the other angle of it looks less at kind of the systemic issues and more at some, maybe some of the, the intra-psychic or the um, inter, intra-personal qualities of what makes this hard. And I'm thinking about the clinical literature that looks at compassion fatigue as yeah. um, the cost of caring, right? That there is, there is a toll on over-caring. There's a, there's a cost of overcaring, and and so when you know we we might look at that clinically as therapists and say, okay, why are we overcaring? Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on for people that we are overcaring? And yes, there's systemic things, which I mentioned in kind of the first the first point. Like, we might be overtaxed, uh, we might not be allowed to be our full selves. But then there also might be something for us around not knowing how to titrate care sometimes working harder than the people that we're with, working, you know, trying to save people in safe systems. And so when we look at what is so exhausting about this, why we can feel so depleted and why why it's so hard for us to do this work, there might be things inside of us that that don't allow us to know when it's time to stop. And we might sometimes, I mean, I say this from personal experience, this is really for me, I think been a big piece of work in terms of the origin of my orientation to doing helping work was I didn't have to exist. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to ask myself questions about what's happening for me when I could be preoccupied with asking other people what's going on for them. Mm-hmm. So it worked for me to overcare as a means of escaping from myself. And, and when we ask the question about what is it, what do I get from overcaring, right? We might, we might be um, surprised to realize that it actually works for us sometimes to escape our own inner experience. And for me, it went from, you know, if I, if I help people, Mm -hmm. then, um, then I can experience myself as good in the world. And I have some proof that I'm not a waste of space that I don't have to carry shame. I mean, these were things that I used to really feel and believe about myself and to be a helper was like a fix to my own chronic shame internally. And, and that leads very easily to kind of compulsive overcaring as a means of earning worth. Totally. Well, and I think there's like, you know, this version of a conversation, um, that's, that can really easily be distilled down to that, where we kind of go like, you know, as private practitioners, especially, um, who have the capacity to maybe make different choices about our time and, and how we spend it, that the over-hyper kind of functioning, over-caring place probably does have some amount of motivation in some of our own discomfort in, in asking some of those questions of ourselves. I think for so much of our audience, when I think about like first responders, frontline workers, you know, nurses, police officers, firefighters, part of the other challenge that I think uh, exists in that is it's not just them. It's also the system demanding of them. And so there's Mm -hmm. this hard wrestling place because I think it can kind of be both right. Mm -hmm. That to some extent we invest in these professions, um, with this again, genuine heart and yet how that heart was shaped and how that maybe does reflect some of these pieces of trying to avoid my own 
stuff internally by directing it towards something that, you know, socially, ethically, morally looks like it suggests mattering, right? That's this one piece in that. And yet also we are likely to be over demanded of. The system will never stop calling out because we're short staffed. There will Mm -hmm. never stop being opportunities for overtime because there is such high degree of need. And so how, like, what do you imagine that looks like to try to balance when the demands aren't just coming from my own internal desire to separate from myself, but also from these systemic invitations to continue doing that and that it's really welcomed, right? Like we'll pay you double time for that. We will, we will reward it if you would overwork, please. Mm-hmm. And your question is how do we bet? What do you mean? How do we balance? How do we yeah. balance what? So I think just that piece of like, so when, when the demand is placed externally, mm-hmm. we have a different potentially capacity to feel like we have control over interacting mm-hmm. with it. Right. So like, I think what you've opened is this question of like, if we were to have the power to make different choices, we could analyze whether this has, uh, whether the motivations around my overcaring are things that are serving me internally in ways that perhaps are not necessarily as, um, you know, lovely as I'd like to imagine them to be. They are in fact actually trying to distance me from myself. Um, But when you have this added feature of outside Mm -hmm. demands that we actually don't feel like we have the same power or control Mm -hmm. over shifting or making choice around and are invited into that overcaring kind of place where, again, we might thrive to an extent because it feels more comfortable um, than wrestling with some of the alternatives, but also puts us in that position of constantly being overburdened and taxed, Uh right? Uh What do you imagine it looks like to try to kind of operate from a sustainable heart-based place within Uh those systems when that is, you know, it's coming from outside? Uh Yeah. And I think I'm I'm so glad that you mentioned the systemic piece because I've started thinking about this and I know other people are using this language too, but thinking about burnout as not necessarily a representation of the person's limitation, but actually an exploitation of the system, right? Calling it burnout places it in a way is almost like mm. a victim blaming statement because it places yeah. the responsibility on the person for not having enough fuel, not having enough resources internally, instead of looking at the context, which again, the, the, the academic literature about burnout is pretty clear that yes, it's felt, the impact is felt in the nervous system and the body of the individual, but it results from a lack of resources and support and over demand around a person. So we know absolutely that that's a big part of what happens when people get really fatigued doing the caregiving work that that so many of us are doing. And so I think, you know, it's an interesting thing to think about in relation to my first, my first point. Again, I I don't presume to solve all of the problems systemically because I think we need to be able to speak up and advocate for ourselves and join together and care for each other and recognize limits and things like that. But is there a way to be even more connected to ourselves and articulate that in the context that we work in? And bring, I, I think this is what you're asking, how, how do we bring our whole selves and our whole heart into those situations? I'm reminded of um, Joan Chan's work. She's a physician in Ontario who's 
created a project called Healthcare Human. And the idea, she's a, yeah, working primarily with those in healthcare and physicians to say like, yes, I know that the burden is overwhelming and there are actually ways to change, but you need to be able to access this kind of fortified ego strength internally to resist some of the temptations of money, resist some of the temptations of pressure from peers. And again, that comes back to that, our internal working model. What, what do I have to know about myself to be able to say to my boss, I, I can't work that much. It actually won't work for me. And here's the cost on me. And can I tell you, can I actually tell you from a place of connected to myself, connectedness to myself, mm-hmm. here's what it's doing to me. I need you to know. And what does it mean in order to be the one who's perceived perhaps by colleagues as being less effective or weak or letting the team down to protect our, our bodily knowing that something is too much? That takes an incredibly resilient resource self to be able to say, I, I can't do something. Yeah. Right? We, to be able to flip the script and say that that's not, that's not us dropping the ball. That's not you know moral weakness, that that is us actually respecting the the value of who we are. You know, another person whose work comes to mind is Trisha Hersey in the NAP ministry and this idea that when we are resting in a capitalist overproductive society where we are treating people like commodities, treating bodies like objects, mm-hmm. right? So much of our healthcare system is objectifying, not in a, a sexual way necessarily, but in a, in a way that reduces us to a thing that's useful for yeah. the purpose of caring for others. Her work has been really instrumental in recognizing that rest is an act of resistance, that to say no mm-hmm. and to uh, stand in opposition to the hustle to allow ourselves the pleasure of slowing down is actually a way that we stay connected to ourselves, but it is the thing that puts brakes on a culture and on a system that treats people like commodities. And so when we are connected to ourselves, this comes back again to so much of my work around embodiment, when we are listening to our bodies and listening to when our bodies are screaming, you have to stop when we are listening to our bodies and making space for that, mm. I think that it naturally interrupts systems that are unsustainable, but I think it also offers a witness to those around us who might have forgotten how to listen to their bodies. And yeah. when we are all collectively listening to our bodies, I think we create systems which allow people to be more human instead of mm-hmm. more objects. Oh, Hillary. Oh. I- <laughs> There is so much good in that, in that piece. I loved, I loved a word you chose in that. Um, It hit me and it was the word exploitation by the system. And I, I don't know that I've ever used that word to describe what I see happen, but it is 100% the word that describes what happens. And I'm so glad you brought that word to this conversation. Um, And I think, so before this episode goes out, we'll have just finished a series um, that is a kind of book review of Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. Um, And the framework for that conversation was really this piece about so often the people who rise up through the ranks in these kinds of systems 
and end up in positions of leadership are not necessarily the people who would be best at leading. They're often the people who are great at controlling, great at reducing things to meet budget line approval, uh, right? Like they are very often the kinds of people who toe the line to systems that really do want to reduce us down as commodities and just demand more of our time um, as if we're never ending resources. And when people are burnt out, when they do go off on leave, they seem almost expendable. Um, We'll just get a new cohort in and we'll train them up and we'll do the same thing all over again. Um, and so I, I value so much this idea of what it looks like to remain connected to our bodies or potentially learn to be connected to our bodies for the first time ever in our lives. Because I also don't know that our culture instructs that particularly well. And maybe we circle back to that in a minute. Um, but to, to remain connected to our bodies is what allows us to then have those conversations and to be leaders who really hear people and who don't invite more of that hustle culture, who do adapt the system to reflect the people that it represents. And I think the hard part is that those roles, those positions of leadership often don't seem to want that kind of person in those places. Right, which I think is like the really hard tug of war that I experience in this work supporting first responders is having these beautiful, incredible people who who really do have great hearts be in systems that just squish that until it feels like they can't exist in it in order to still have a heart at all. Right. And I think that it's where I continue. And again, I don't pretend to have any answers for all of the things either. Um I just hope we can have the conversations and name some of it so that people don't feel like they're lost in the weeds, feeling uncertain about how they got here, if it's normal or all of the things. And I so value you bringing some of these pieces to the conversation. Hmm. There's a lot to sit with. I wonder, as a bit of a redirect, you've used this word embodied a bunch of times in this conversation. And for those who, for whom that word doesn't feel like it has clear meaning, can you outline a little bit about what you mean by that and what it looks like for us to be embodied, to be in relationship with our bodies as part of how we experience our world um, so that we can maybe offer a bit more clarity around that piece? Mm-hmm. Yeah, many of us have probably heard that word colloquially used to think about what, you know, a person who represents the ideas that they stand for, you know, that that person, that therapist really embodies the compassion uh, that's, you know, at the heart of that theory or that, you know, that 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 faith leader really embodies, you know, justice as an orienting principle to the world. But what I, how I mean it is um, to reference this movement that came out of continental philosophy and phenomenology and existentialism that then drifted into psychology and clinical work, which looks at the body as the central place of being human, not just the mind. And reclaiming the body as the place where we exist, not just you know, a mind that carries the body around or the body that carries the mind around, but actually seeing our self-structures interwoven into the quality of, um, of our senses, of our physicality, and there being some usefulness and meaning in, in uh, sensing into the fullness of who we are instead of just, again, living up in our minds. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, you know, the, the clinical literature about embodiment is really clear that embodiment is a 
kind of a bi-directional um, dialectic of sorts that we are we are mind-body internally. And in fact, there's not really a clear distinction to delineate the two anymore. We know scientifically that mind-body is actually a, an, a process that results in the felt sense of self, but that 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 interoceptive attention to what is it like to feel ourselves as a body is dramatically impacted by the social context around us. It's always mm. what's happening inside of me and my felt sense, but then also what's going on around me? What do they, what do the people around me and the culture around me say about being a body? And we might find that in certain cultural landscapes, and I mean, let's just say, you know, our family of origin, maybe very safe to be a body because we felt like we could play and jump and run and listen to our bodily cues. But we go into the world and we are gendered in a certain way. We go maybe for people socialized into manhood and boyhood, they go, oh, 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 no, don't feel my feelings, disconnect. Or you've been in a faith community that has said, don't don't listen to your body, don't trust your feelings, don't listen to your sexuality, don't listen to any cue inside. It's it's bad and needs to be mistrusted. So there's, you know, there's lots of different contexts that we can be in that result in different felt experiences of being a body. And sometimes when we spend a long time in one context and the context says, don't trust yourself or there's trauma there and it is too overwhelming to be connected to ourselves. When we are in that context, we become in a way um, disembodied. Mind you, disembodiment, I think, doesn't ever really exist in the sense that we're, we're never actually just a mind. We're not mm-hmm. kind of in, in the matrix where our mind is plugged into something else and our body is the meat taxi. Our body is always yeah. there communicating and we just have to go to great lengths sometimes to disconnect from that. But to become embodied again, to feel ourselves as a body often takes a little bit of time and enough relational safety or enough content of a, of a kind of secure container for us to be able to practice creating in this little context. Again, some courage as we touch back in on what it feels like inside of us. And when we learn to do that in our adult lives and we can reconnect with what does it feel like to be me? then the beauty is that we can begin to take that into many other places, including maybe some of the workplace spaces where it feels really hard to be a body because we might realize, okay, within the safety of my therapist's office, I can, uh, I can begin to touch in on that felt sense of, you know, the rumbling in my tummy or the tightness in my chest or the real, the realization that my muscles are contracted pretty consistently. I can start to notice that and work with that. And when I have enough of a, repertoire of my inner landscape, then, then I can begin to notice, wow, when, you know, that policy came out at work, I felt like a gut punch and it made me realize like, that's unsustainable for me. And I'm, I feel scared and I don't know how to do that. And maybe, maybe then I can do something with that information, but it's Mm -hmm. not always that in the most oppressive context that that's where we learn how to feel into our bodies. It's often the places where we feel safe enough to risk to sense again. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That was a great instructional. Hmm. I think that there's um, some really hopeful pieces in that. Hmm. And at minimum, I think it's actually also a really valuable way that we walk around our world, right? Like mm-hmm. um, I find some of the most impactful work I do is kind of this psycho Eddie work, which is funny because I think in therapy that's kind of discounted as like not the depth work, right? That really matters. And yet 
um, when I explain to people, like, this is how your brain works. And not only is this how your brain works, this is actually how a lot of people's brains are working around you, right? So like, you know how your brain is autopiloting some of these things and it feels not in your control. Equally, that boss at work that you think is a total jerk probably has a similar brain thing that's doing just its own version of a thing. And so, you know, as unreasonable as they may seem, they're also just products of some of these patterns and expressions of those patterns. Um, and it it's always really powerful because it gives people a lens to look through that kind of like depersonalizes it a little bit. So instead of the story being about how like, I'm so broken, I'm so shameful, I'm so this, that, and the other, that person's so terrible, that person's so awful, that person's so hurtful. It's like, no, no, my brain, my experience is bumping around in here trying to figure it out. And their experience is bumping around over there trying to figure it out. And we just happen to be like bumping into each other in ways that are not very comfortable, right? And when we can name that, we can interact with it differently, right? Like the capacity to have awareness of these pieces is powerful. It's meaningful in allowing us to have a different capacity to do something with it rather than just feeling like we're victimized by it. I am just in the in the passenger seat to what my brain is doing with no conscious awareness of what's going on or why, and I feel helpless to direct any of it. And so I feel like there's pieces similar to that in some of what you've shared, right? That when we can grow our sense of capacity to sit with, be in, identify what is happening for us inside of our bodies. It also gives us this window into the fact that there's a lot of other people bumping around in the world who are also in their bodies and who are probably varying degrees of equally unknowing about what's going on for them in their bodies because we don't tend to train this very well in people, right? We do have this tendency as a culture to reduce people and not just, you know, within systems for some of these like consumeristic kinds of principles, but like, because I wasn't trained well and I'm uncomfortable in my body, I will equally make my children uncomfortable in, right? Like we Mm -hmm. find ways to, to translate this legacy of disconnection from our own selves, And so Mm -hmm. we're all just like out in the world walking around your face right now, (laughs) right? Like we're all doing this. And can we hold that tension a little bit that our boss isn't just an asshole boss, although they maybe a little bit are, but right. Like they're equally, you know, broken, experienced, you know, whatever they've experienced versions of a self that are equally in the world, uncomfortable and trying to flail around and figure out how to exist here. And we're just interacting with these different versions of each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What a compassionate perspective that seems to humanize in all directions. Mm -hmm. It's something you said, it just reminded me of something I've been thinking about a little bit lately because of a project I'm working on. And, um, thinking about the lack of information that we have about our own psychobiology as a form of hermeneutical injustice. And that the term comes from Fricker. And the idea is that we, you know, we, when we hermeneutical injustice occurs, when a person is unable to express or understand something important about their lived experience, because there's a 
there's a there's social tools, social resources, social education is lacking to help them interpret what's going on and make sense yeah. of it. And so even to see like you talked about how sometimes um, psychoeducation is is devalued or diminished because it you know it might not be real work in a, in some way or it might not be kind of the yeah. foundation of what changes people. I think of it as a social tool. Like it's not just for the individual. I think it changes the social fabric that we have totally. because, and it's an, it's an act of, I would say justice, right? If hermeneutical injustice is us lacking collectively the social tools to understand what's going on for us and other people yeah. and make reify our own experience to empower people through education is actually to change. Yeah. The structure of our shared social narrative Right. For example, think about how decades ago the word sexual harassment didn't exist. And all of a sudden having language for it in the workplace empowered people to go, oh, my goodness, this is what's happening. This isn't okay, And I can do something about it. So even putting language to things like exploitation right in the workplace, burnout as exploitation or saying, here's what's going on in your nervous system and what might be happening in your boss's nervous system or in, you know, in why this this is normative, this kind of use and abuse of people is normative because we're coming from, you know, systems built based on whatever orienting principles from people who themselves were coping with their own unresolved trauma. I think that this is the beginning of justice. Information yeah. is one of these really powerful and important tools. So I would add that, right? Even talking about embodiment and bringing dialogue about the body, it might be it might not be the same as mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. sensing into your body, but that might be the runway that somebody needs yeah. to be able to begin to remember bodies are important. Other people's bodies are important. Well, what's happening in their body? What's happening in my body yeah. as a as a thing worth inquiring about? Well, and it's this, I mean, what it makes me think of is this idea I talk about on the show a lot off and on, and it's this idea of like contextualization, right? Like when we can grow our understanding of the context, we have different power to interact with it. And an example I'll offer is, um, you know, my husband about two years ago was in a bike accident and had a really bad concussion. And then in the last year was in a car accident and reconcussed. So same what had had healed quite a bit is now back with a vengeance. And there are moments where I can forget. I can forget that that's a thing he's coming to the party with. And he'll have responses to things where he forgets something I just said, or he will sometimes forget to the point that he's mad at me because he thinks I've withheld information. But we literally just had this conversation, right? And if I don't recall the context of what he's coming to the party with, I can take that really personally, right? I can tell this story in my head that says, he doesn't listen to me. He doesn't pay attention to me. That feels like a representation of him not caring about me, him not feeling effortful in our relationship. I can tell a whole story about how that's this like very hurtful, disrespectful, right? Awful kind of experience within our marriage. Or I can remember that this is a piece he comes to the party with. And that whole time I can sit there kind of giggling in my own head being like, concussion brain, that's what we're working with here, right? And that actually is the context. That is what's going on. It is why this is a problem, right? So like the whole story I could have told, I could could get into all of that. And I can react from all of those places, which makes me distance. It makes me not 
as pleasant, right? Like it, it makes me want to withdraw and self-protect and guard, right? But none of that story is necessarily accurate at all. It just is a decontextualized way of filling the gaps and telling a story, right? Mm-hmm. And the more we can contextualize and and uh, have uh, like connect to the nuance of some of that context, the more we can kind of go like, okay, how much do I want to let this be my story, like my personal hurt story? And how much do I want to contextualize this back to like, no, no, there's other stuff going on here. And I think we have the capacity to do that on a far larger scale when we can understand ourselves as a body bumping around the world, trying to figure it out. Um, And probably a not very well trained body bumping around the world, trying to figure it out. And we can respect that others are too. We have a different capacity for that compassion piece that says that doesn't make this all feel okay or all right, right? It still doesn't feel good to have someone not remember what I just said or be upset with me because they think I'm withholding information. That doesn't feel great, but I can understand it through a different lens that allows me to interact with it differently. So instead of interacting with it from this place of like, but I just told you, right? Like, and getting escalating that we can come back to it with like, I get that for you, this feels like this thing. And right, I I do feel like I shared this. Here it is again. It's okay. Concussion right. brain, right? Right. Can we have similar capacities to see ourselves within a broader context that is not just this interaction and this moment and the story we tell ourselves about that, that there may be other versions of a story And that when we hold this piece about embodiment as part of that story, that we have this different lens to see people through that says, right, you're just human too. And you are equally probably not very well trained at reading your body. And we're both in a system that actually really invites us to suppress a lot of our body. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. That feels like... Yeah, that will be ahead. such a key. I'm just affirming like what you're saying that yeah. remembering that will be such a key in, in terms of us having compassion for ourselves and longevity in a system, compassion for other people, and maybe even cha- beginning to change systems. Yeah, totally. What were you going to say? I mean, I think it connects to this piece and I don't know that we have time to go into all of the things about it and that's okay. But one of the things I think is tricky for a lot of people who do these kinds of jobs, these first response, frontline, really high exposure jobs, um, is that they have this like survival response that's outside of the typical survival responses. So I often talk about how first responders, you know, we we recognize our survival instincts are by flight, freeze, fawn, right? Those are kind of the natural groupings. And that the invitation is to do none of those things. The invitation is to do this whole other response set that I talk about as hold. So my body's alert system goes into, I want to fight back. I want to run away. I want to hold still and hope to God this is over soon. I want to placate you and hope to God you let me out of this, right? That those are the natural inclinations. Our body activates one or more of those things. But the training is stay, hold still, be ready, go into the fire, not away from the fire, go into the fight, not away from the fight, right? Like it's it's a very different response set. And so part of what the job actually is, is disembodiment. Like it mm-hmm. is saying, oh yeah, I hear you, shush, we got to go do that thing now, mm-hmm. right? 
and that that probably complicates some aspects of this process. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there is a way of framing that in terms of positive embodiment. So recognizing the, abil- the ability to stay connected to your bodily cues and address them without silencing them and allowing mm. them to be present, I think yeah. might be one of the missing ingredients. ingredients because as you mentioned, yeah. I think the temptation is, right, to, to your sensory cues, shh, right? I need to go into the fire. I need to yeah. go into things. Stop talking to me. And actually what we would see might be the link to keep us connected to ourselves is, Hey, I know I'm imagining, you know, mind talking to sensation or thoughts talking to impulses. I know that this feels contradictory. I know this feels scary and we're going to do it together. And I'm going to be right here with you. And we're going to hear all the things we're going to do after we're going to shake. We're going to create, we're going to play. We're going to laugh. We're going to cry. We're going to soothe. We're going to get beheld. We're going to nourish ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so you can keep talking to me, sensory self. You can keep communicating because I'm aware that what we're about to do feels really um, confusing or different than what maybe, you know, your instinct is. And I hear that and I see that and here's why. And we have this gear and we have these people who are going to support us and we have this training. And so the ability to notice those things and still connect to them and honor them and provide ourselves with the solutions and resources might, might actually scaffold like mm. retaining embodiment in situations that would otherwise be disembodying, but it, it takes more labor on our part to yeah. say, you can keep talking to me bodily self, right? You can keep yeah. saying those things. And there may be some situations in which we go, wait a second, you can keep talking to me. And what you're saying is that this risk far outweighs the training I have this risk. Yeah. I I'm going to need a lot more space to come back from this mm situation I'm heading into is too costly. Yeah. And I'm going to need, um, I'm going to need some extra resources on the other side. Right. Yeah. I think that that might be part of this is when we are connected, mm-hmm. then we might also be more aware of what we need mm-hmm. and we might be able to ask for that clearly before yeah. it's over. Well, the need is overwhelming us. I love that so, so much, Hillary, because I think you've totally named it. And I love the structuring of that as this, again, intrapersonal relational dynamic, right? I often talk about similar kinds of concepts, different language, but similar concepts in terms of can we say, yeah, I see you, right? Like, I see you there. I see you, right? That part of me that's showing up in this way at this time. I see you there. And I I know why you're there. I get what you're about. But this is a different time. This is a different place. This is a different situation. And so while I hear you and I, you know, respect what you're bringing here, because I get that you've been through a thing, this isn't the same thing. And and I've got you. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to, I'm going to help us get through this thing that you're worried about. Right. And so like, I love, I love that we are in relationship always, including with ourselves. Uh And I love this piece of adding body as, you know, a part of self that is informing and instructing and voicing and right. Like sharing. And can we be in relationship with that piece of us? in all of the same ways we would want to be in depth relationship with other people in our lives. Mm-hmm. Solid note to end on Hillary. <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time to be here. I've really valued this conversation. I'm so grateful to have been here and learned, 
learned lots listening to you and so grateful that we could have had this conversation too. Thanks for inviting me. I want to extend one more really big thank you to Hillary for making the time to join me today. As we wrap up, let me remind you that if you value this podcast and want to help us in our mission to support frontline wellness, there are three ways that you can do just that. First, rate and review Behind the Line on Apple Podcast or wherever else you might be listening. Number two, follow me on social media at Lindsay A. Foss and engage with me and this amazing little community that we're building there. Every time that you like, comment, and share our posts, you help us to spread like wildfire thanks to the magic of the algorithm. And last but not least, share this resource and our other resources with those you know. If you would like a poster or info cards about the podcast for your workplace, send me an email at support at thrive-life.ca. Know that we can be found online on our website, on most major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. We make all of our resources available to you because the work you do matters. But more than that, you matter. And we want to make sure you have what you need to keep up the good work at work, as well as in your real life outside of work. So use it and share it. And until next time, stay safe.